Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book, I Needed a Neighbor, by Patricia Sanjin, with permission of Scripture Union Publications, and we are on Chapter 6. Just a couple of hours more, said Gabriel, and we shall be at the rest camp. Keep going. It was early morning, and they walked slowly, remembering that small, shallow mound. Celestia's mother wept quietly, uttering the traditional cries of mourning, and the old priest walked beside her. Other mothers glanced anxiously at their children, for they were low in the foothills now, and the heat was increasing rapidly. There was little water left, and although the younger ones stomped along bravely, their bodies were becoming dehydrated. Gabriel picked up Tikla again, and they forged forward. No one spoke, but the heads were lifted a little higher. At least they could see where they were going, and shelter was not far off. It was stark, a resting country that they had transversed now, quartz-colored rocks behind them, gleaming in the early sun, red-ribbed soil ahead under a bright blue sky. Then leafless forests grew on those slopes, their boughs torn off for firewood, and the day became hotter and hotter. Then they saw it, and a feeble cheer went up, a little town nestling at the foot of the sandstone cliff with houses of black basalt, or sandstone, a rock-hewn church and a green mosque. Here there must certainly be food and water. But they were not going to the town. Instead, they turned aside into a grove of dry, brown-leaved eucalyptic trees, and an earth bank covered with bushes sloped down, and Gabriel turned to the disappointed crowd. Follow me, he said. He turned the corner, and suddenly they had arrived. There was a large underground shelter, invisible from the air, with raised platforms covered with plastic so that travelers could sleep out of the reach of the ants and the vermin. Other groups were already installed, their belongings scattered around them, and they were drinking water and eating food. Sick, exhausted children were being tended with care and kindness. To the footsore, hungry travelers, it was as though they had reached paradise. They squatted in the shade of the tree and waited their turn. Their turn came soon, and they were fed, and they drank, and lay gratefully down to sleep. The tired children snuggled against their mothers. Only Celestia's mother lay in a corner alone, rocking herself and mourning. They slept or lay resting all day and far into the night. At dawn next day they were once more fed and told to fill their wattle bottles and collect their ration of food. For we shall travel till midday this morning, said Gabriel and then we will rest and go on through the night. Grandmother rose and shook Tikla awake. Then she went to Grandfather, who was lying very still. There was a big festering sore on his foot where he had stumbled over a stone. It was covered with flies, and he was breathing very rapidly. His eyes were bright, and she had not seen them bright for a long time. They had been dull with hunger for many weeks. You have a fever, she said. You cannot walk. We will wait. Later on you'll be able to travel. He shook his head urgently. Gabriel must go with the village, he whispered, and you must go with him. The children, you must take the children. I will stay here. I will not travel any more. She knew he was speaking the truth, and she knew where her duty lay. Yet it was hard, for she had lost so much. Her oldest daughter had been taken south, and her youngest daughter had married a man who lived far across the mountains, and as far as she knew, most of the village had perished in the early months of the famine. Now it was her husband, whom she had married when she was twelve years old, 
and from whom she had never been parted for a single night. One by one they had slipped away from the struggle and the hunger and the rough roads and death seemed almost a well-known friend. Yet the parting was still hard. She had loved him when the fields were green and the earth was soft, but she had loved him much more in the empty years of the drought because there was nothing left except love, and the flame burned brighter in the darkness. Gabriel stood by her side and there were tears in his eyes. We must go, mother, he said. They have given us our food, but it will not last till the next camp unless we start now. Here they are kind, and they will care for Father. You should come. Merit needs you. She leaned over Grandfather and gave a little wailing cry of love and sorrow, for it was like tearing away a part of herself. He was almost too weary to open his eyes, but he managed it. The children, he whispered, go with the children. Then he turned on his side, closed his eyes, and gave up the fight. She knew that it would soon be over, for there was nothing left now for which he needed to live. A kind young worker led her away. We will stay with him, he said. It will not be long, and there is a priest in the camp. And this comforted the old woman, for although she had never understood a word of the language in which the holy book was read to her in the church, the priest had told her that this world of pain and famine was not the end. Somewhere, some day, she might see her husband again in a land where the fields were green and where water flowed, perhaps very soon, for she felt as though most of her life and strength were dying with him, and she did not want to live. But for the children's sake she must go on. She muttered the name of Mary and every saint that she knew and set out on the road. For a few hours they risked traveling on a real road, built by their own people for the transport of their food trucks, but in the heat of the day they went down into the little valley and rested in the rustling shade of the eucalyptus trees. Here they were safely hidden. The pungent smell made them feel drowsy, and most of them slept. When they woke, the shadows were lengthening, and the stark colors of the burnt, rocky landscape stood out in the startling shades of red and gray and black in the last rays. They lit their little fires and baked their bread while the older children explored the valley for seeds and edible roots. But they did not go far or find much, for they were weak and tired children who only wanted to rest. It was getting dark when they set out again, and although the land was still dark and desert, they were leaving the worst of the famine behind them now, and the camps were closer together. The days passed in a weary pattern of resting during the day and starting again on the long, long march through the cooler nights. But some of the children with their stick-like legs walked more and more slowly. Although some of the little ones were carried, it was impossible to carry all. It was a sad sight to see a mother or father, already burdened with a baby, a toddler, blankets, and a cooking pot, trying to heave along a teenage girl who could go no further. The little convoy grew smaller as the old and the weak died. Some died of anemia or scurvy. Some developed such severe night blindness or trachomia that they could no longer see the pass and fell over the rocks into the ravines. Little children and babies died of dysentery and dehydration and a trail of earthen mounds hastily scratched from the soil by the wayside grew longer. But each time they reached the rest camps, there was kindness, food, water, and even medical care. They reached the west of the country where the rivers had not all dried up, and although it was only February, small showers of rain had already fallen and a thin veil of green seemed to rest like a mist over the parched land. 
but the population of the villages were already swelled beyond capacity by the thousands who had fled the famine, and they could not stop there, so they went on. Crossing the rivers was a problem. The water was usually low, and the men would stand in the deepest part and help the rest across, soaked and shivering to the further, further bank. There were places on the road where bridges had been built, but they dared not use them, for they were prime targets for the enemy planes. Merritt trudged bravely along, and her grandmother trotted beside her. Tikla was usually safe on Gambry's shoulders, but his stomach was getting bigger and bigger, and his arms and legs smaller and smaller. Suddenly, one morning, on a flat stretch of rough ground, Gambry stopped and looked down, and the whole company came up to him and looked at him. A broad river flowed between banks at their feet, and the trees along the verge were green. We will rest here and drink and wash, said Gambry, and then we must cross it. The current is swift, but there is a kind of ford. When Gabry waded in, the waters rose to his chest, and he was a tall man. Yet cross it they must if they were to reach the camp by the next morning. One by one, the men carried the children across, bidding the adults bind their belongings on their backs and hold their babies above their heads. Merritt and Teekler were already on the far side, having been transported on Gambry's back. He was now supporting his mother in midstream. Just then, Miriam, a neighbor from the village, slipped and disappeared under the water. She surfaced, gasping and screaming, but her baby, born just before they started out and held high above her head, had been swept away. As the tiny body reappeared and disappeared, one man after another plunged into the flood. Then there was a great shout of joy as his father caught hold of it and swam to the shore. Was it too late? The child looked blue, its eyes tight shut and its mouth wide open like a small fish. But they held it upside down and shook the water from its lungs, and an older man, who had once been a medical orderly, breathed into it a kiss of life. The muddy crowd stood round motionless, fingering their crosses, while the baby's mother lay on her face, sobbing hysterically. Then a miracle happened. The baby gave a gasp and a sputter, vomited up some of the river water, and gasped again. Merritt, who was close beside it, saw the pink flush under the dark skin, and as the baby opened its eyes, a great cry went out from the crowd. For the first time on that patient journey of sorrow, they rejoiced together. The child lives. It lives, they said to each other over and over again, and suddenly Merritt noticed that the trees by the river were green and beautiful, and there were small flowers on the bank. Even wizened little Tikla smiled and clapped his hands, although he could not possibly have known what it was all about. It was as though for one moment life had triumphed over death and joy over sorrow. But it was only a small break in the clouds. As they traveled on, the country was becoming more thickly populated and showing more scars of battle. Sometimes they passed through the villages where every home had been demolished, where schools and clinics and even orphanage, orphanages functioned in a dugout invisible from above. Traveling was becoming more and more dangerous, too, as on this bare, undulating country was impossible to hide the ragged column of people who trudged on and on. They traveled more by night now, and the pace grew slower and slower. The nights were growing hot in the lowlands, and the children used, used to the high mountain air found it very hard to go on. Grandmother talked no longer, and her breath rattled as she toiled along. The sun had risen behind them, and the stumbling travelers strained their eyes to see whether the camp was in sight. But the light was too bright, and they looked down at the asphalt. Rest was not far ahead, and Gabriel had decided to stick to the road. 
At first, only one or two heard it and stopped dead in their tracks, looking at each other. Then that fainting humming swelled to an angry roar, and the parents seized up their children and rushed for cover. But there was no cover, so they flung themselves down among the thistles and shell by the side of the road, covering the small bodies with their own. And the great plane swooped almost to the ground level, strafing the road with its machine guns, and then tilted back into the blue, gleaming silver in the sunrise. For a long time, no one moved. It was a deadly quiet, and Merritt, lying where her grandmother had leapt on her and flung her to the ground, did not want to open her eyes to find out what had happened. Then the weeping began, and the groaning of the wounded, and those who were unhurt crawled out to see what they could do. Gambry, sheltering Tikla, had not been hit, and he took command. He and two others carried the wounded to a flat place where another couple sped off to the camp to find help. The dead they lay in a shallow ditch and covered them with stones and thistles. They mourned and wept for them, and the priest recited prayers, holding his gleaming cross high in the air. But Merritt sat, rocking Tikla back and forth, seeing nothing, unmindful of food or water or heat, for she had struggled out from underneath her grandmother and seen the bullet wound in the back of her head. Now she watched them carry the frail old body and lay it in the ditch. And so there was no one left but Tikla, who lay shocked and listless in her arms, and her uncle Gabriel, who stood stony-faced, looking down into that mass grave. And next time we will be reading chapter 7. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.